Hi friends, today we are talking about teaching melody to older beginners if you do not have access to barred instruments. My name is Victoria Bowler and this is episode 45 of Elemental Conversations. I'd like to set the scene for this conversation before we jump straight in. Today, we are going to talk about how we might approach teaching melody without barred instruments. But the elemental piece of this, like the big building block, big idea of this episode is that we're ultimately just talking about how to teach melody. We're just talking about how to teach melodic elements or melodic patterns. So if you have instruments that you can add into this process, then go great. But if you don't have instruments, the process stays the same. When we teach melody in this way, we are using instruments as an integrated part of the melodic process, not as an isolated part, right? So instead of saying, we're going to learn how to play this song on barred instruments, we are looking at a more broad lens, a a more zoomed out approach to teaching melody, which is how can we incorporate instruments into our overall teaching process? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Our example today is revolving around teaching melodic patterns that use low law. And that's because uh, this is at the request of a friend of mine inside the planning binder. She is starting a music program at a school that has not had music in years and years and years. So she is the very effectively, she is the very first music teacher and certainly the first music teacher at the school that her older beginners have had. So she is in the process of getting barred instruments, but as we all know, that is in fact (laughs) a process. And sometimes, especially with, you know, shipping delays and everything going on right now, sometimes that takes uh, longer than we would like. So with her older beginners, she has noticed that they are having trouble figuring out pitch relationships and noticing melodic contour patterns in things that are using mi, re, do, and lo, la. And we'll talk more about that teaching sequence in a moment. Let's talk about instruments and older beginners and why it is a convenient tool to use. We'll kind of set the scene in that way. And then we'll also talk about a melodic sequence for older beginners and then a learning sequence when we are teaching melody and how instruments fit into that and how we can kind of uh, depart from using instruments as well. When we talk about instruments for teaching melody, we are specifically in this in, in this episode talking about barred instruments. Those are the xylophones, the metallophones, and the glockenspiels that you see in so many elementary general music classrooms. They are very handy things to have in your teaching for many reasons, for many different grade levels, but very specifically with older beginners, when we teach melody, what we generally see, and this is, you know, just kind of uh, statistically across the board, and there have been a number of studies on this, generally we see a higher level of interest in singing when students are in the younger grades. And then as students get older, we see this interest in singing start to decline. So it is likely that your second graders are going to be more enthusiastic vocalists than your fourth and fifth graders. If that's something that we notice in our students, it's not because uh, our repertoire is necessarily 
off. It's not because our students are trying to, necessarily trying to, make our lives unpleasant as the music teacher trying to convince them to sing. It's just a very natural part of growing up as a musician is that we start with a very high level of musical, uh, of, of vocal interest, and then that just gradually declines across the board as students get older. And what we will see is more of an individual interest in students, right? You'll have like your fifth grade choir kids and like they are all about choir. But then you'll see a different group of students in these upper grades that don't necessarily connect with choir in the same way or with singing in the same way. They are more interested likely in something like percussion instruments or perhaps movement, things like that. So just to set expectations, right? That's something that we've talked about in terms of classroom management. Just if our expectations are set at the front end, that this is going to be something where we'll need a few different strategies when we are working with older beginners, uh, older elementary students in general. When we are teaching melody, the the body is still the first instrument. We're not going to depart from that um, basis for teaching everything that we do, whether that is melody or rhythm or form or what have you. The body is still the first instrument, but it is convenient if we can transfer that melodic understanding to an instrument because it feels like a little bit less of a vulnerable um, ask. For, for some of our older students. So with that said, what does it look like to still meet students where they are from a developmental standpoint without barred instruments? That's what we'll talk about today. How can we keep the body as the first instrument? How can we transfer melodic understanding to another medium all without using these ORF instruments? Let's talk about a melodic sequence for older beginners. There is a step-by-step series of melodic concepts that we are going to focus on, and those are outlined in a curriculum outline, and then they are mapped out throughout the year in a scope and sequence. There is a step-by-step series of learning events that are outlined in the concept plans, but that is those are like the learning activities themselves, not the musical content. So let's start with the musical content. We'll start with this curricular sequence, and then we will jump to the learning progression. When it comes to a melodic sequence, there are so many options and uh, there, you know, depending on the background of your training as a teacher, you might have some really strong opinions about the uh, progression of melodic concepts that students are going to engage with. So while there are many options, many correct options, we are going to answer this question about what makes the most sense for your specific students and your specific musical preferences. What are the types of repertoire that you want your students to engage in? When we think about this from an older beginner standpoint, because again, that's the context that my friend inside the planning binder is talking about. When it comes to older beginners, it is entirely likely, and in fact, I would encourage you <laughs> not to start your melodic sequence with so and me, adding in la. That's something that would probably be appropriate for younger students, maybe not your fourth and fifth graders. So instead, many educators opt to do do, re, mi, mi, re, do, and then add on lo, la, and lo, so. So we have do, 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 as in A, B, C, easy as one, two, three, 
mi, re, do, sol, la, do, re, mi, do, mi, re, do. Right. Uh, we will do do, re, mi, mi, re, do, adding in lo, la, and lo, so, and then we'll jump up to so and la. Another option would be to kind of take the the flip and <laughs> take that sequence and kind of turn it on its head and do do, re, mi, mi, re, do, and then jump up to so and la, and then jump down to lo, so, and lo, la. So inside the planning binder, we are doing lo, la, and lo, so first. If we are having trouble with low law, it is, as, as we are in, in this specific situation, if we're having trouble with low law or any other specific um, pattern, melodic pattern, it's a really good idea to be curious about how students were engaging with, in this case, do, re, mi. So whatever the melodic sequence is that we are using, our understanding of all of the future elements depends on how we understand the current pitch set. So if we're ever having trouble, if we ever notice that students are having trouble matching pitch or recognizing the difference in these pitches, right? Some aural awareness questions. If we ever notice that students are struggling with a specific melodic element, we're going to get curious about uh, recalling how they were expressing their understanding of the melodic elements that came before this current challenge. Another way to say this is that we are always comparing the known to the unknown. We start with what we know. So in this case, mi, re, do, and then there's one new element that students are exploring. And in this case, that is lo, la. Let's talk about a melodic sequence for older beginners. We've talked about a content sequence, a musical curriculum sequence. And now we're going to talk about the actual learning activities that students do in order to build understanding around these melodic concepts. These are the steps that move from the known to the unknown when we are teaching melody. And this is where we are going to get into where instruments can come into play, where barred instruments can come into play, and what we might do instead if we are not transferring our understanding to the barred instruments. Now, like all things in life, I want to give just a very quick disclaimer. <laughs> like all things in life, people do things differently, right? And differently does not mean wrong. With all things in life, people have different opinions. And that is certainly true when it comes to music pedagogy. So if you are um, feeling a little bit lost in your teaching of melodic concepts, then go ahead and give this framework a go. If you have something else that you really love to use, no problem at all. You will hear as you listen to this, that this is aligned with the Kodai concept. This is not a melodic sequence of learning activities that I invented, right? Um, this would all be, another thing to say is that this would all go under the umbrella of preparation in the Kodai concept, which is where students are engaging with the material and they're learning about things on their own without the teacher standing at the board and saying, this is law, say law. Let's spell law. Let's show the hand sign for law, right? <laughs> Students are experiencing it on their own and building that understanding through play-based active activities. So we'll talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the use of different uh, so-called methodologies when we, when we talk about teaching melody. Okay, <laughs> with all of that said, let's jump through this progression of learning activities. The first thing is singing it tunefully. The next thing is moving to the melodic contour. The third step in the process is noticing the melodic element and describing it. And then the last thing that we are going to look at is uh, showing it visually. And we'll also jump into a little bit of uh, playing by ear in this process as well. So 
the first step, regardless of whether or not we have barred instruments, the first step in learning a melody, a melodic element, in this case, low law, is using it in repertoire. Can we sing this melodic element and can we sing it tunefully? Are we matching pitch? All of these learning processes, all of these learning activities happen within the context of repertoire, which is why so many, so many music teachers talk about the repertoire being the curriculum because the repertoire is the context for learning. So let's imagine that we are using Big Fat Biscuit. And if you're not familiar with that song, it is Big Fat Biscuit Chugaloo. Fresh from the oven, Chubaloo, boy, jump over yonder, Chubaloo. And this is a jumping game. So at the end of the song, two students are lined up shoulder to shoulder, and they both jump out as far as they can, and whoever jumps the furthest wins. We can also do, um, there's a pop song that we are using inside the planning binder, along with Big Fat Biscuit and Alabama Gal. When we do these songs, a really great formula for uh, buy-in with these older beginners is singing plus X equals singing, <laughs> as opposed to singing equals singing. Do you remember that we talked uh, at the beginning about how students' interests just across the board in, in general, right? Not, not every specific student, right? But in general, our interest in singing goes down and there's a lot of fear associated with these older beginners using their voice. And so if we just say, sing this song, it is likely that we could have some resistance to singing. Maybe we would get a chant, like we're using a speaking voice, or maybe students will just sit there silently. Or what is even more likely is that students will look for another activity to do instead of the activity they don't want to do, right? We'll look for something else to do, such as moving to a different part of the room or turning to a friend or making a silly sound or whatever it is instead of singing. So instead of this formula of asking you to sing equals singing, we can have singing plus X, singing plus body percussion, plus drums, plus movement, plus games, singing plus X equals singing. Students will do a lot better if they have something to do with their bodies, um, like a, a body percussion ostinato or something like that, uh, when we are asking them to use their voice. Singing is still a really important first step to melodic understanding, because remember, the body is what we are using as the first instrument. But having something as simple as a clapping pattern, right? Big fat biscuit chubaloo. And having that jumping game can be really helpful. So our first question is, are we matching pitch? And this is why your university for your undergrad used sight singing and not sight reading as your oral training um, class. The voice is the most direct representation of what is happening in our brains because there is not a transfer object, a transfer instrument that we can type on. So if we were to just play a barred instrument, that would show us that students can play the barred instrument, but that doesn't necessarily tell us what's going on inside their minds as far as aural awareness. So we are using this sound before sight approach to learning music. And that has a lot to do with aural awareness, beginning with, can we actually match pitch with the song? So if there is ever a 
uh, an issue in the learning process that you notice, like students are having a really hard time. Let's say we move way toward the end of the process and we're reading, uh, let's say we're sight reading this on the staff and you're like, wow, students are just not getting this sight reading activity, or I've asked them to improvise with low law and they are just not doing it. We want to back up. And even if we go back to very, the very first step, step one, are students matching pitch with this melodic element? Let's not rush past this step. This is the foundation. So if we were to take this with the low law example that we have talked about because of my friend inside the planning binder, the very first step would be to make sure that students are singing and playing the game to Big Fat Biscuit without my assistance. I want to listen for students singing low law in this context tunefully before I get curious about the next steps in the process. So singing and playing games is step one. That's the most important step of the process. <laughs> the next question that we would get curious about is, can we show the melodic contour through movement? Movement here could certainly be, um, could be a movement that is teacher directed where I say like, follow my motions for up and down, but it could also be body percussion or solfege hand signs. If we are to, uh, invent a new sign for the new element that we haven't learned yet, we can also use melodic contour, or we could point to melodic contour on the board, or we can point to a barred instrument visual that is placed vertically. The vertical placement of the barred instrument is really important. This is when we talk about melody, we are talking about the relationship between high and low sounds. We're talking about intervallic relationships. And so if I were to take that barred instrument and say, uh, point to the melody on the barred instrument, well, I don't, I don't know that all of our students would be successful with that because it's hard to tell what the logic is between those steps and skips on the barred instrument when it's placed horizontally, right? With the low end on the left and the high end on the right. But if I were to take that same barred instrument and flip it vertically, so the high side is literally high and the low side is literally low, then even if I don't have the very specific bars uh, in my mind, even if I'm not playing the correct notes themselves, the correct uh, letter names themselves, I can still show the high and low relationships on the barred instrument. And that is really important. This is something that we can also do without having a physical instrument in the room. If we were to just look at the barred instrument as an image, that would be really valuable as well. So if you do not have access to physical instruments, you can still show the pitch relationships using a barred instrument visual that is on the board. And along these same lines, we can use something like a tone ladder or stair steps or something like that to show the melodic contour of the song. So in low law, uh, if we were to use Big Fat Biscuit, we could ask students to turn to a partner and put something lower, something on body percussion in a way that matches the melodic contour. So that could be with a partner, we could clap our hands together and then pat our legs and then clap our hands together again. And for this, at the very beginning, you might show students a few different options. So snap, clap, snap, or uh, clap, stamp, clap, 
whatever that, uh, whatever those different options are. If you show students the direction that you want them to move, that can be a helpful thing for older beginners if they have not yet built the aural awareness yet for this melodic element. That is the third step. So we have step one is singing it. We have step two, which is showing it through some sort of uh, physical embodiment of that melody, some sort of movement. And then the third thing is, can we notice the melodic element and describe it? So is it higher or lower than X? Um, how many times in the song or the phrase do you hear a pitch lower than X? Or what is the highest or the lowest pitch in this song or the highest or the lowest pitch in this phrase? Uh, what word is the highest or the lowest pitch on? And then another interesting question is, does this melodic phrase, this melodic element that we are listening for, does it have a twin or double agent in another song? Such as if we were to do the song Seashell, at the end of Seashell we sing, sing about the sea, which sounds exactly like do remember me from Rocky Mountain. So we have some secret agents in there. All of those questions are really valuable for helping students build an aural picture of this target melodic element. Notice here that instruments are not a, an absolutely necessary part of the learning process at this point, right? And then also notice that we are not teaching melody. Again, just want to reiterate, we are not teaching low law by standing at the board and pointing to low law on the staff and saying, copy my hand signs and sing after me while I sing solfege that uses low law. We are guiding students through a learning process that is much more inquiry based and it is much more student centered as opposed to the teacher just always at the board pointing to standard Western notation. Okay, so if we were to take some of those questions that are uh, intended to build aural awareness, and if we were to apply those to the low law example with Big Fat Biscuit, we might lead students to orally identify first do, re, mi, because remember that is the known element. Those are the known, uh, that's the known melodic pattern here. We have the known what we need to do is move to the unknown. So let's start by solidifying do, re, mi. And we can find that in Big Fat Biscuit. We know this sound. What do we call this do, re, mi? Because that is a pattern that students already have in their ear. They know that backwards and forwards because that's what became, that's what came before low law in this melodic sequence. Great. So we know that this song uses do, do, re, mi at the very beginning. What about the direction of the melody in Chubaloo? Well, I can hear that it is here, then lower, then it goes back up. It kind of looks like a smiley face, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exciting. So does the space between these pitches, loo, 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 sound like they are skipping or stepping Chubaloo? Does it sound like a step or does it sound like a skip? So students can articulate that this lower pitch is a skip below do. And just to be um, explicit in this, uh, this trajectory, uh, we know that it is a skip below do because we can orally identify which one the melody sounds like. And we know that Big fat biscuit, do, do, re, mi. We can hear that chew is the same pitch as B. 
big. Uh, and so if we know that that is do, then we can hear that the next pitch is lower. Therefore, it is a skip lower than do. Okay, so that's like the very detailed step-by-step -step process that if students are having trouble articulating what, articulating what they hear, we'll just guide them through this series of logic questions. Yes? Okay, so we have singing the song, playing the game. We have moving to the melodic contour. We have noticing this new element and describing it. And now the next question is, can we show it visually? This is where we can use a barred instrument visual. This is where we can use graphic notation. This is where we might use stair steps. This is where we might use a tone ladder. We have lots of options here. There are a couple very easy like drag and drop ideas for a visual representation. One of them is which melody on the board matches Chupaloo or Big Fat Biscuit Chupaloo. If you wanted to do that entire phrase, you would just put the melodic contour on the board, a few different options. One of them is correct and a few of them are incorrect. And you say which phrase on the board matches the target phrase. And students are going by what they see, not the very specific steps on the staff per se, uh, but just the melodic contour of the high and low pitch relationships in that phrase. The next really easy thing to do would be for you to take some circles and like some note heads and just put them all in one single line across the board. And students help you say higher, lower, 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 higher, lower, lower. And they help you kind of drag those symbols down or up to match the melodic contour. Another option here is just to hand uh, like bingo chips or uh, strips of paper or a pencil and a sheet of paper even and say, will you please on your own just write down this melody and ask students to create their own visual representation of big fat biscuit chupaloo, something moving up, then going down, lower, back up, right? Many people would stop here and label the element, the new element as low law. And I like that. And I do that often. Another extension of this visual representation that's kind of uh, tying in all of the work we've done so far is to figure out the instrument, uh, excuse me, is to figure out how to play this by ear on a barred instrument. So this is a time where playing something on a barred instrument would be a direct part of the learning process for me. As a quick aside, playing by ear is really, really important to me. That's something that I care a lot that students can do. Because when students are outside of the music room and they hear a song that they want to learn how to play, I want them to just hear it and then be able to go and play it on the piano or on their violin or on their tuba or whatever it is they're using. I want them to have the tools that they need to understand and to listen and to share music with their peers outside this very formal standard Western notation umbrella of music education outside these four walls. Can you actually use music in the real world in a way that is fulfilling and gratifying and communal? And ear training is such a huge part of that. So I love being able to teach students the, the pitch relationships that we can see on a barred instrument. 
When we are figuring out how to play a melody by ear on a barred instrument, this is using aural skills and visual skills. Barred instruments physically show the outline of steps and skips in a way that a recorder doesn't. A recorder is like kind of close, right? If you think about uh, so many of us teach soprano recorder in, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade, there's kind of a relationship between the low pitches and the high pitches, but it's not as direct. It's not as explicit as we see on a barred instrument. And then same thing with the recorder, or excuse me, with the ukulele. A lot of us teach ukulele as well. And we do have the pitch relationships on the fretboard, but that is a little bit more detailed because we are all in half steps. So if we can transfer our understanding of steps and skips to a barred instrument, that is such a beautiful direct way to show the high and low spatial relationships of what we're hearing in our mind and what we have already shown visually with graphic notation. So since we've already done all of this physical prep, we've done all of this aural prep, and we've done all of this visual prep, we can use those same visual cues of high and low pitches, just like we would if we were visually placing the melodic contour phrase on the board. It's the exact same thing that we've been doing, but now instead of putting it on the board, we are putting it on these bars of an instrument. So this is where one of our challenges can come into play if we don't have access to barred instruments or if our barred instrument access is limited. So let's look at a couple different options. With barred instruments, you might ask students to play Big Fat Biscuit Chubaloo on barred instruments starting on F. Well, using just our visual knowledge, we already know that Chubaloo is do, skip lower, back up to do. So if we place a barred instrument vertically and I tell you that F is do right now, you can automatically figure out that the low pitch is D because I visually see that it's a skip below F. And then the same thing, if I tell you that do is C, we can automatically tell that the next low pitch is A because it's a skip below. Same thing, if I tell you that do is G, we can see a skip below D, a skip below G is E. With this barred instrument placed vertically, we just need to know pitch relationships that we've already identified from singing it and moving to it and uh, listening for it and showing it visually. This is just a natural extension. Playing by ear on a barred instrument is a logical next step of all of the work we've done before. If we do not have access to instruments, no problem, or barred instruments, no problem. And that's something that my friend was talking about. She was talking about using boom whackers instead or desk bells. And I think that boom whackers are a fabulous replacement for barred instruments. If that's something that you have access to, beautiful. We can use boom whackers as well. So let's do that same activity. Let's play Big Fat Biscuit Chubaloo on boom whackers. For this, we would have students line up with their boom whackers from low to high, and the teacher can help with this placement. Uh, but notice that exactly like our barred instrument, the lower pitches are longer. Those boom whackers are, uh, they have a, a longer length than the high pitches, which have a shorter length. Notice that this is the exact same set of pitch relationships as our barred instrument. 
And another convenient way to show this would be, uh, you remember how we were placing the barred instrument vertically instead of horizontally? We can have students stand with uh, the lowest pitch. Someone sits on the ground and they're holding their boom whacker out horizontally. And then the next highest pitch, in this case, do, uh, that person could be kneeling with their boom whacker also placed horizontally. And then someone else is standing with ray, which is also placed horizontally. And then someone else is standing with me, which is placed above ray. So we can stack these boom whackers. Students are holding one boom whacker, but they are stacked as if they are a barred instrument placed vertically. So when we do this, it's like we're making a human xylophone, yes? And students can play their boomwhacker by hitting it against their hand or perhaps against their knee or, you know, something, something like that instead of playing on the floor all of the time. So here, it would be the exact same learning process. I tell you that do is F or do is green. We can play this melody, Big Fat Biscuit Chubaloo, Do, Do, Re, Mi, Do, Lo, Do. We can do that same thing with boomwhackers. Great. Okay, but let's say that you don't have boom whackers or desk bells or barred instruments. We can do this with body percussion as well. So let's have students play Big Fat Biscuit Chubaloo on body percussion. We can have four students line up with a body percussion level from low to high. So we'll just pick four students uh, and amongst themselves, they need four levels of body percussion. That could be stamp, pat, clap and snap. And we can use this same idea of a human piano, a human xylophone to play the melody. But this time we are using body percussion levels from low to high to play those pitch relationships. Let's very quickly talk about the word method, because I mentioned that this is aligned with the Kodai concept and um, specifically some of the steps that we would walk through in the preparation phase. Within each step of this process, though, even though it's kind of mapped out in a like, uh, this would be step one, then we would move on to this, that kind of thing. Within each step of the process, though, we can still be creative and give students choice about things like arranging and improvisation. We can incorporate those skills, those creative ideas, those creative tasks into this process as well. In my opinion, and this is a, this is absolutely a personal opinion. In my opinion, this sequence of learning activities is not a Kodai sequence for Kodai people. It is a sound framework that can live in many different situations. So imitate, explore, create, in my opinion, is incredibly compatible here, especially as we expand our work here and move into the practice phase. Okay. I want to give a really quick uh, comment on that. Okay, let's talk about this progression. It seems like it is a linear progression, right? When I lay it out this way, like step one, step two, step three. This is a linear progression, but it's a little bit more of a circular progression <laughs> or maybe a loop-de-loop progression of, uh, you know, we go here and then we go back and then we go forward and then we go back. These are our steps, but when we finish a step, we're not done with it. We are going to want to circle back in each class to review. So for example, um, when we sing and play the game to Big Fat Biscuit at the beginning of the learning process, right? Because remember, that is step one. After we sing and play the game in one class, that doesn't mean that we're done singing and playing the game, right? It's not like, okay, that was step one. We're going to be done with that and move on. 
It's just that these are the mile markers that we want to pass before we move on. So we can't hand students, uh, let's say that we have a group of four students, we can't hand them boom whackers and say, okay, go play Big Fat Biscuit if they have never heard or sung Big Fat Biscuit, yes? (laughs) So these steps are intentional in their progression, but I want to be clear that they are not isolated by themselves. Let's talk about these steps as checkpoints. If this sequence gets stuck at any point, we are going to want to pause and go back. So at the beginning, we talked about how my friend is noticing that her students don't always recognize the pitch relationships, the melodic contour of Big Fat Biscuit. Well, if that is, you know, step three in the process, then I would be curious about going back. If we were to back up and look at those first two checkpoints before moving on to this third checkpoint. Yes. And we can also go back, we can pause and go back with other songs that use this target element like Alabama Gal. And I talked about a pop song that we were using as well. And then maybe an additional song that the teacher chooses. This melodic element is living in many different contexts with lots of different repertoire opportunities. And with each of those opportunities uh, inside the learning process in the planning binder, there are a lot of different uh, ways to express your understanding of these pitch relationships. It also might be a situation where when we look at the learning progression, we might decide that we just need to camp out on one step for a little bit and explore, let's say, uh, moving to the melodic contour of many different patterns that use low law. We might decide, we might identify that that's the missing step that students need, or we might decide that students just need more time with the game. And that's really important to, to note here as well. Students might just need more time time and that's okay. That's good. Singing and playing games and, uh, you know, doing body percussion, that's a lot of fun. So if that's where we get to hang out for an additional two weeks that we weren't expecting, nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing in the world. Earlier, we mentioned a curricular progression, and we also mentioned a learning experience progression. If we are having trouble with, in this case, low law, that could make us wonder if students have really grasped the relationships with Do, Re, and Mi. So do we need to back up and play the game to Big Fat Biscuit more, right? So step one of this learning progression, or do we want to back up and review the repertoire that we are using for do, re, mi instead, because that was the previous melodic pattern in the curricular progression. So that's a question that we could get curious about. Is it, is it an issue with the learning sequence with the learning activities themselves, or is it the curricular sequence? And we actually need to back up and review previous melodic concepts. So When we are using barred instruments to show melodic understanding, we will experience the element first, we will move to it, we will notice it, and we will show it visually. Barred instruments can come into play at any point in this process, but without a barred instrument, we're still doing the process, right? So hopefully if you're in a situation where you don't have an instrument collection yet, you are moving toward that direction. So when we teach in a way that focuses on pitch relationships, when we teach melody in a way that focuses on pitch relationships, instead of isolated, how to play a song on an instrument. 
We are really equipping students with what they will need to transfer that knowledge from their personal experience, from their, from their embodiment of that melodic pattern to an instrument, to a staff, to a new song, or to their own musical creation. <laughs>